how many tickets have we sold? Uh, we have sold 94 tickets. There are 26 tickets remaining. Oh, my goodness. At the time goodness. of this recording, which yeah. means probably by the time you're listening to this, there might be a handful of tickets left. Yeah, future Jake will cut in and uh, correct yeah. us. But I'm just curious as of this recording because we've only been on sale for five days and I can't believe we sold nearly 100 tickets. That's bananas. I got text that Monday with uh, from one of the managers who was like, are we going to sell out before the end of the week? <laughs> <laughs> like they were like so scared and excited yeah hey friends future jake here as promised as this episode's about to go up on thursday evening we've sold all the tickets except for 12 so if you want one grab one of the dozen because it's about to sell out i'll leave a link in the description of this episode for ticket sales all right here we go what does your coffee mug say it says <laughs> To my dear daughter-in-law, I didn't give you the gift of life. I gave you my amazing son. Thank you for not selling him to the circus. I know that was a tempting option, or how tempting of an option that was some days. Love, your mother-in-law. Does the circus still buy people? (laughs) Myth busted! (laughs) That's right, folks. Uh, Welcome to Woodland War Machine. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the podcast you clicked on. Um, That's what the podcast that's hosting RootCon. And today we are talking about myths in Root. (laughs) (laughs) Cha-ching. Yeah, we're talking about all the kind of like commonly held beliefs, whether they might be true or not. We're going to put them to the scientific test, you know, just like the scientists that we all admire, the Mythbusters. (laughs) That's right. We're going to bring you hard data, including stories that will tell you about our experiences with Root. (laughs) Yeah, I did bring a crash test dummy. I don't know if it will be useful. Every time we bust a myth we just punch the dummy is right oh i like that yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah um sam look out i did have a pallet of duct tape sent to your house so <laughs> at some point that should be arriving <laughs> uh for all the games required for RootCon, i was like coordinating with like a fedex pallet to be dropped off and it did go to my spam folder <laughs> uh at, at first because i was like i'm not expecting a package that comes on a pallet. Like I didn't, I wasn't thinking. Um, Leader Games also didn't say, "Hey, we're sending it like to your email address." While I keep an eye on this. So, um, so then, like when I was like, "Hey, where where are the games?" They're like, "We sent them," and I was like, "Huh? Whoa!" whoa. <laughs> but luckily, it was like just as it arrived in Portland, so I was able to schedule the delivery. And the games are there. Is it pretty cool to see a pallet of root in your back uh, area there? Yeah, well, we've gotten in pallets of root before. The store sells a ton of root, um, but it is fun to know that we have the Underworld expansion up there, and everybody wants it. But sorry, (laughs) that's for RootCon. (laughs) Whoa. Yeah, it is broadly sold out around the world. Yeah. I think there's a few Australian copies you can get your hands on still, and a few Japanese copies as well. But those are upside down, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the river flows the other way. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, also, I want to say to any listener, if you have any leads on how to get one of those Chinese knockoff copies of Root um, that were that got in trouble a few years ago, uh, uh, I don't know if you've all seen these like counterfeit. It's not like a perfect counterfeit to Root. Like It's like a re-theme. They like, cl- clearly just ripped off Root. Um, I want one of these copies really bad. 
Where, where did you see this? I, I've never actually heard of this before. Oh, I mean, I'll, I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. Um, fake Chinese root board game. Yeah, that should do it. But then some people are talking about counterfeit copies, and I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about the weird one. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. And then check out the board here. Look at these meeples. <laughs> they are <laughs> so generic. I love Whoa! it. Oh, <laughs> what? Yeah. Is it is uh does anybody know if the game is the same? I guess it has to Look be. at this. It's everything's the same here. Look, this is clearly um what's that card? Royal, Royal Claim. Claim. Yeah. They went through the trouble of recreating the game but remade the art. Also, check out this map you can is like way more summerable here. You can Yeah, 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 yeah. The clearings aren't as suited in the auto map here. Wow. Look at this. They even have the correct points they got the updated points on the ya board here <laughs> this is insane yeah that's outstanding yeah i want it really bad <laughs> i will pay way too much money for a, a copy of a game i will never play i just want it really bad actually i meant to check uh let me look at our distribution real quick and see if we have any listeners in china no, we have zero downloads from the Chinese mainland. We might be banned there, actually. Well, it's all it's the statement you made about everything being fake in China. I think well, that's I cut why that. Oh, it was more about the statement. Oh, about... so now you're censoring information, Jake? It was more about episode 11 where we stood in solidarity with Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a yeah, China and Mongolia and china and mongolia mongolio <laughs> it's me mongolio the, the mongolian ripoff of super mario <laughs> yeah also that's one of my grail games okay i need Mon super mongolio brothers um yeah the levels are all just the steps it's just a straight plane <laughs> king koopa's riding a horse instead of yoshi it's a horse yeah, yeah, yeah china mongolia kazakhstan yeah no downloads there so mm. Mm. but of course there might be a rip a chinese ripoff of woodland war machine out there too <gasps> get them to root con let's do it <laughs> crossover episode well, uh, before we get into the myth-busting part of this episode, I think we got to get into some root news. That's right. We've actually got some incredibly hot breaking news. So if you are a root digital player, I have some incredibly good news for you. On March 30th, Direwolf Games will be releasing the next expansion of Root Digital. That is the Underworld expansion. We are going to get to see the Corvid Conspiracy and the Underground Duchy coming to uh, our Root Digital games. But not only that, not only that, we are getting the expansion maps as well. That's, That's great. That's true, right? Yes. Yeah. And you're getting okay, yeah. advanced setup, which is not actually a part of uh, that expansion. It's part of the Marauders expansion, but it's getting included, right? Yeah. I just played a game of Root Digital where I was the cats and I was locked into one corner of the map and the Eerie started opposite me and because of the three cards they had drafted, they instantly turmoiled and turn one and quit the game. Oh. Because they couldn't leave their clearing. I mean, wow. you could have chosen Despot, right? Fair enough, fair enough. I, something went, went awry. They yeah. like couldn't prevent a turmoil, so it was, it was terrible. <laughs> so funny. Uh, the the thing is with ad set in the game, it's just going to be a better experience all around. 
Mm-hmm. Cats don't have to get locked in a corner. Eerie doesn't have to turmoil on setup. I'm so excited, you guys. This is going to be the rejuvenation that Root Digital really and desperately needed. Um, and, you know, if you are on the Woodland War Machine channel of the Good Time Society Discord, uh, there are Root Digital games happening all the time. And I can only imagine that after March 30th, there's going to be a ton of activity there. So yeah. get yourself into some async games. Let's take full advantage of this new uh, expansion getting released from Tiger Wolf Games. So exciting. I think it's kind of ironic that the Underworld expansion is so impossible to find right now. And then on March 30th, there's going to be a literal unlimited number of Underworld expansions available because it's digital. <laughs> yeah. Coincidence? <laughs> Myth busted. They digitized all the games. Um, yeah. Help, I'm the underworld and I'm trapped in a computer. <laughs> now, just like some kind of wood chipper, but it turns it into like data or something. <laughs> the opposite of a 3D printer. Uh, yeah. Uh, do we know if the new vagabonds are going to be in there too? The uh, Harrier, Ronin, and Adventurer? Uh, I mean, I assume that they're in there because... Right, they're part of the Underworld They're expansion. part of the expansion, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. New factions. Uh, Underground Duchy Corvid Conspiracy. It doesn't say advanced setup, new challenges, and achievements. Yeah, Vagabonds aren't listed on here. Yeah. Okay. So maybe the Vagabonds, the new Vagabonds are not included. We will have to wait and see. We don't have uh, confirmation on that just yet. But I did want to add just a little bit of detail regarding ad set. Mm. Uh, so the way it's being implemented in Root Digital uh, is is very much akin to the way it's implemented in the physical game. Um, but just so that we're extra clear, it's so exciting. Starting hands are five cards, and then players will discard down to three. Uh, and there's a draft system implemented. So um, players will, from a pool of available factions, draft in reverse turn order. Uh, their faction of choice, which is so fun. It's kind of a nice in-between of the current system where most of the time it's like just you pick a random faction. You have the the game randomize it for you. Uh, But this will actually be linked to turn order. So it adds just another little subtle layer of strategy uh, that I think is going to make the experience of Root Digital even richer. And I'm just so stoked, you guys. (laughs) Uh, I was talking to one of my coworkers who signed up for RootCon, having played one game of Root ever. Um, <laughs> he's a very good gamer. He's like a big magic player. Uh, Jake, you played a game of Twilight Imperium with him. I'm talking about Brian. Oh, yeah, Brian. Yeah. Um, and he was asking me kind of about like how the draft works of like, you know, is he going to be able to choose his faction kind of thing? And I was mentioning how, you know, uh, Root has a big first player advantage right but the thing that root has is a bunch of tools to deal with any problem you know we can battle that player if we all agree that that player has an advantage we can take it away but what's nice about ad set is just the fact that the person who goes last gets to choose their faction first yeah kind of softens that misbalance and people can kind of play their own games without having to worry too much about just who went first and how much of an advantage did that give them? It feels wonky to go into the game with an unbalanced nature. It feels yeah. much better to go into it with the setup balancing itself somewhat, you know, before you actually take a first turn. And I love that in ad set, this is probably my favorite part, is when you choose a faction, 
you set it up immediately. Yeah. Well, they yeah key they set up last if they're going first too. Exactly. Like not just your choice. It's just right. where you are. And a lot of times we've talked about this how um, you because people are like, oh, I have to be two clearings away or whatever. They have less options than when it gets down to the person who's setting up last. Usually, like you're breaking a couple of those rules, and so you have more options of where to start, and you get to know where everyone else is going to start, and so you're playing reactively there. So. Just the way it balances the game from the get-go is is so smart and so clean. Yeah, I love it. I'm very excited about it being implemented. And hopefully it'll uh, make digital more accessible to everybody. And I know we started the segment with if you play Root Digital. But honestly, if you don't play Root Digital, you should. Because it's as we, did, as we talked about in our episode all about Root Digital, it's a great way to get the reps in before RootCon. Mm. It truly is, yeah. And plus, now that we have access to uh, the mountain and the lake map coming up, I mean, this is going to be more effective tournament practice than ever. I don't want to be taking any bets at this moment about when Marauder expansion will be coming to Root Digital, (laughs) but, you know, as soon as I get one thing that I, like, desperately want and, like, it's going to be, like, two days before I'm on the Direwolf Digital Discord being like, so, what are you guys thinking about for Marauder? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we're so close at this point. We have Exiles and Partisans. We have now Advanced Setup and the Moles and the Crows. Like, all we need is a little bit more on the Vagabond front and then just the two Marauder uh, factions, right? Yeah. Well, and then Hirelings, Landmarks. Yeah, Hirelings and Landmarks, I feel like, are also going to be a whole nother step for Mm -hmm. digital. I'm assuming. Clockwork 2. Of course, yeah. Mm-hmm. Stop it. <laughs> um, well, we also have some other root news here, and that's that the winter tournament is back. That's right. Round two has begun. Uh, round two is happening in two different segments. There is the winner's bracket, and there is the loser's bracket. Woo! Uh, everyone who did not win their first round game uh, has another life, and they are all competing together. I mean, it f- it feels to me like it's two different levels of intensity if i'm gonna be real right like everyone in the winner's bracket they've got two lives it's like we can be a little cash but (laughs) in the loser's bracket it's just like this is it for me (laughs) um i I just wonder if we're gonna see a difference all right so just broad strokes the second round of the tournament will go from march 18th until april 2nd there's been a few kind of schedule changes so uh just look out for garrick's announcements on that you can find the root winter tournament 2023 round two schedule over on Woodland Warriors in the tournament discussion thread. And uh, we'll also be starting up our cool kids, cool kids for losers club. What is it? Cool kids for losers. It's a program where (laughs) if you're a loser and doesn't don't have a friend, uh, we will donate a cool kid to you to like up your game, both socially and, you know, in, in board games. So what's up? Uh, these dice have like 20 sides or something? Wow, his hat's on like backwards, man. He's so cool. <laughs> Last piece of Root news is that the Community Plays Root games are back starting in late April or early May. If you missed out on round one, which we talked about on this podcast a few times, it's a game where you join a discord server you're randomly placed on a team and then you and all the people on your team work together to play collectively and decide your moves on an individual basis on a game that's run on tabletop simulator and uh, moderated by the moderators of the discord it was a blast the first time we did it it's going to be a blast the second time i have a little bit of information for us if we want it Uh, this is going to take place the round two is going to 
take place on the lake map. There will be no fairy, interestingly. The, the factions have already been decided. We have the Eerie dynasties, <laughs> the uh, the Eerie one last time, and they are, whatever team picks them is actually, they are forced to choose a clearing that has the Elder Treetop in it already. That's a little bit of a continuity story from having won the previous game. There's also the Riverfolk Company, the Lord of the Hundreds, the Woodland Alliance, and the Vagrant Vagabond. When those factions are selected, the fifth option, whichever one was unchosen, will be the promoted hireling for the game. Uh, if the river folk is that, then they will use the bandit hireling on its promoted side instead, because we had the tortilla in the last game. I think they want to change it. Interesting. The demoted hirelings are going to be the protector and the mole artisans. And there is a landmark that's not the fairy. It's the black market. Interesting. Oh, fun. Mm -hmm. So that's like the, the broad strokes. If you want in on that, Go join the Community Plays Root Discord. I'll put a link in the description of this. And I don't know the exact date, but it's uh, sometime around the start of May is when that game will be starting up. All right, fellow scientists. Is it time to start <laughs> busting myths and proving theories? I know I've got my beakers ready. Okay. I was telling Kyle <laughs> when you were going and getting your coffee is that like tea. Sorry, when you were crafting your tea. I was telling Kyle that I feel like we are, we are going to be kind of talking about this and providing less evidence for things because these some of these myths are also asserted without evidence, right? So that which can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. Is that is that our our tactic without having to do all these? Yeah, I think that's uh, a, a rule of physics, right? That's Newton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what he said. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Those were his last words before the apple killed him. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, we're scientists. We're not historians. Okay. Yeah. Well, I I think you're underselling the authority. <laughs> and the process that we are going to go through in order to prove or disprove these myths. I think you're overselling the scientific nature of our analysis. <laughs> oh, really? Then what's this Bunsen burner doing? Uh, that's lighting your coat on fire. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> that's how oh, Newton God. died. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's start in on this, folks. Myth one. The Woodland Alliance is unstoppable. Now, of course, <laughs> you can point to many examples in your life, but they didn't win. But when played right, is the Woodland Alliance unstoppable, Kyle? Well, I'm, I'm really glad you asked this question because uh, as a big proponent of like th the Woodland Alliance being one of the more kind of puzzly sort mm -hmm. of actually calculable factions, yeah. um, it, seem it sure seems like even given all the RNG present in a game of Root, you know, when played optimally, the Woodland Alliance would be, you know, essentially you could calculate whether they could win in any given state. And if they could win, then there's nothing you could do about it. I think the theory is basically that the Woodland Alliance is just too strong and right. that kind of no matter what you do, you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't in terms of ways to stop them. If you just stock up on warriors and try and keep them static, uh, then, you know, all movement starts to feed the Woodland Alliance if they're going over sympathy and that helps them win. And if you go and attack them, then, you know, you're losing warriors to guerrilla war, and then you're weaker on the board, and they can spread sympathy more easily. So they win that way. So it, it feels like the Woodland Alliance has the right tools for every job in that kind of regard. But unstoppable? I think that is 
for sure an overstatement. Like that's that's for sure a myth. Well, yeah, obviously they don't have a hundred percent win rate, right? But we all have been in games where you're like, oh wait, the Woodland Alliance is going to score like eleven, twelve, fourteen <laughs> points on their turn, right? Always say twelve points. Twelve, yeah, they're going to score twelve points on their turn. Like what? And you can't really do anything about it. Maybe we should talk about where this myth comes from. It, does it? Here's my question for you guys: Does it come from the fact that stopping the Woodland Alliance by killing their by moving into their sympathy and then removing it gives them supporters which lets them put more sympathy out which eventually is always going to lead to a revolt in some cases right like or which is always going to lead to a revolt in those cases because that's just the way their engine works is the more they're put down the stronger they come back right is that where this myth comes from i think so right i think it comes from the feeling of they won last game, so this game I like kept moving into their clearings and battling them, and they still won. Right. Right? But I think that it's because you have to contain them more than you need to eradicate them, right? I played a game recently where the Woodland Alliance sprung up all in my area. I was the moles, and I just chose to dig to the other side of the board and never interact with that sympathy. <laughs> <laughs> and it worked pretty well. They put like four sympathy down, but then they had no supporters and mm -hmm. no one was going over there and generating those supporters. Um, and I think that in those situations, the Woodland Alliance needs to mobilize a lot of their cards. But if they don't have multiple bases down, they're only drawing two cards. If they don't have any bases down, they're drawing one card. That's not enough to get that engine rolling in a timely fashion. It's not about necessarily stopping them. It's just about ignoring them as much as you can. Yeah, you kind do. Of, right? Yeah. And you want to build up the walls of warriors to make that eventual spread of sympathy cost more, right? You want to be triggering, triggering martial law. Yeah. This is sort of a counterintuitive, uh, a, a counterintuitive idea where you have this scary faction, especially if you're like early in your root journey, you've played a mm -hmm. couple of games, the Willing Alliance has run away with a few you know, your immediate thought is like, okay, well, we got to put out the fire. Let's go and just stamp them out, like wherever we can find them. Go, go hit the base. Go, just you know, move all around. Like try a really active defense. And I think that really what hurts the alliance is lack of interaction. Mm -hmm. Right? They need that kind of like friction from the board to get their engine rolling and so you know the more you're interacting with that sympathy you're attacking it you're moving through it whatever uh that's what's charging them up and so if you can kind of isolate contain not interact that is going to slow down the within alliance to a critical degree they're like every bully they just want attention <laughs> <It's> <laughs> don't true. give it to them it's true i think one of the things to keep your eyes on if you're trying to bust this myth is that supporter stack how many do they have in there? Do they have one supporter? Well, then they're not revolting. Do they have five supporters and no base? In which case, this is the turn to go and move through sympathy and start attacking it because they're not going to get any additional benefit from it. Yeah. If you can kind of play those edges and be aware of where their board state is at, they are pretty stoppable. And I want to um, address a, a sort of sub-myth that kind of exists inside of this myth. Okay. And that is... Uh, so the, the Alliance has Guerrilla War, this kind of permanent ability where they take the higher role mm -hmm. in battles, right? Even as defender. So the, there's this like tiny myth 
that I I think about where it's like, oh, if you want to attack a Woodland Alliance base, you need like a big army to do it because they're going to chew through all your warriors. Hmm. And I think that, again, to be like specifically vague, this does depend on how many warriors they have guarding the base, but the Alliance is a small army. That's kind of part of their faction design. They are almost never going to have more than two or three warriors yeah. at a base. Right. Because that's just not efficient for them, right? They have to get those warriors out to score. So... When you're attacking a Woodland Alliance base, you actually don't need to wait and build up a gigantic army. You just need enough actions to roll not a zero <laughs> when you battle. That's really what the limit there is. You just need a couple warriors enough to, on a tied roll, kind of keep pace with the number of warriors they have left. And enough actions to kind of break through their defenses. Because oftentimes, after one or two hits... All of that cardboard in that clearing, the base, the sympathy, that's just exposed and ready to be destroyed. So I think, you know, when you're when you're planning on storming a base of the Woodland Alliance, don't think about the number of warriors necessarily. Instead, try and focus on the number of battles that you're going to have. If you only have one or two battles, maybe think twice. Now, Kyle, as my respected colleague in science, it is with all the respect in the world that I do humbly disagree here. I mean, if I'm bringing three warriors into a clearing where the base is guarded by two warriors, right? I feel like this is a common situation. Base has got two warriors and I roll one, two, zero right off the bat. Then it really doesn't matter how many other battles I have, right? Because I'm not taking the base anymore. What say you, sir? <laughs> I think in that circumstance, that's absolutely true. I think that a three to two is right. probably not enough of uh, an edge in terms of warriors. I okay, think th so the rule is you need to be able to survive the first failed battle, right? Because knowing mm -hmm. the statistics of dice, knowing the battle dice statistics, which we do, you roll a zero as the attacker, was it 6% of the time? 6.25, right? Right. One out of 16. Yeah. But then with Guerrilla War in, in the mix... That That's it's... what I'm saying. As the attacker, which the Woodland Alliance always is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 93% uh, of the time, they're going to hit back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. or, or you're not going to. Right. So you need to at least survive the first one. Yeah, being able to... So then maybe that's like the root of the calculation is like be able to soak one battle at least. Mm -hmm. And uh, the chip damage goes a long way. It's so expensive for them to just get the warriors out there. Like those mm -hmm. evening actions are few and far between and they're going to want to use them to organize because that's the optimal way to get more sympathy out to keep the generation of followers going. Yeah. And so there, this kind of leads us to a discussion where stopping the Woodland Alliance, sometimes you don't even need to battle the base. Sometimes all you need to do is camp a bunch of warriors on the base. Mm -hmm. Make it expensive for them to escape. Force them to spend their actions fighting you. And in that way, you can slow them down without having to fire a shot. Also, maybe just part of the myth of how unstoppable the Woodland Alliance is comes from newer players forgetting that the, that Woodland Alliance needs to rule clearings they are moving to or from. Yeah. They are not <laughs> immune. They don't, they're not nimble. Okay. <coughs> they are not immune to the movement rules. And as a result, that can be a big part of the Woodland Alliance puzzle. And if y'all are new to the game, that's an easy one to miss because they have such a low warrior count and the vagabonds moving all around. You think like, Oh, I can just move these guys, but that's part of the trick. Similarly easy to forget is martial law. Yep. 
I think it's just it's just frequently overlooked, except for those people who've played against the Wooden Lions enough to have it burned into their memory. <laughs> <laughs> we all bear the scars. Yes. Martial law solves this problem without you even needing to go into their area, right? It's um, true. Very hands off. I love it. Yeah. Okay, I've got one. Uh, this is we've we've talked about how to stop the alliance. Now this one's going to be a little more from the perspective of the player playing the Woodland Alliance, and that is that the best revolt is in a clearing with a bunch of cardboard and warriors in it. Right. Yeah. I used to think this. Yeah. It I makes think this sense. is a You're very like, common ha- myth. You have a bomb. Don't you want to kill things with your bomb? Well, right? not only do you want to kill a lot of things because some of those cardboards or the cardboard things that you kill are worth points, but also right. the more things, quote unquote, you kill, the further behind your opponents are, presumably, right? Sure. Yeah. So it's a double benefit. Yeah. But what's the truth of this, Kyle, is that situationally it's more about your positioning for spreading more sympathy in the future? That's the thing. It's like, okay, so yeah, it's it sure feels nice to blow up everyone in a clearing. Uh, but you have to be realistic about what are your prospects for spreading sympathy after that one turn of, you know, fire and glory. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's often it's better to have a well kind of positioned base as the alliance versus having a revolt that scores you a couple of points here and there because in the long run more of your points are going to come from spreading sympathy than from destroying stuff on a revolt and often too if you're going to be in a really busy clearing or like spread sympathy choose to spread sympathy to a busy clearing someone is going to probably destroy that sympathy because it's it's in their interest to preserve their forces yeah so yeah, it's very provocative to spread sympathy there, and it might be too costly to try and defend it with a warrior if you already have a base. Uh, last thing to think about is not all revolts are created equal. There is a small... I think that was also Isaac Newton, right? Yes, yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, there, There's a small bit of text on the Woodland Alliance board that says, if you revolt in a clearing, if you have sympathy in a matching clearing somewhere else on the board, you get to spawn an additional warrior at your base. Yes. So sometimes revolting in a clearing that is well positioned, where you have sympathy in another match and clearing, is going to get you way further in the game, even if you're not scoring any points from blowing stuff up. Especially in that first base drop, right? Because as we just discussed, those evening actions are so expensive because you have to have the officers. But if you have bonus warriors at the outset, then first off, your base is much better protected and secondly you just are you have a, a step ahead on the next turn of generating more sympathy yes exactly so yeah i i, I um i'm glad that we got to bust the myth of the revolt we obliterated that myth yeah yeah okay uh, yeah jake i think i need you to do like a myth busted voice so i'm gonna say the myth and then you say myth busted okay so the woodland alliance is unstoppable Myth largely busted. All right. (laughs) And attacking a Woodland Alliance base requires a huge army. Myth obliterated. (laughs) Well, I don't know about that one. And then myth, myth, uh, myth addressed. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. We did address that one. And the best Woodland Alliance revolt is in a clearing with a ton of cardboard and warriors. That myth is horseplay. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. All right. Our next myth is... If you roll 
double zero five times in a row, you are less likely to roll it a sixth time. Oh, no. Somebody <laughs> brought this up, and I was like, don't you bring this up. I know. I'm surprised you wrote this. I don't know. I thought it'd be fun to mention it. Sure. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I get for those it. of you that didn't listen to the right. RNG episode, uh, you should. It's really fun. Uh, but we discussed this of like... <laughs> The way odds are calculated is that they are independent, right? So your role on one instance does not affect your role in the second one. The only thing that changes is necessarily like the the starting situation, like if you have less warriors to generate less hits. But the dice being tossed on the table isn't going to change based on your last toss. Now, as scientist Sam right now, I totally get, agree. I totally agree. But as Sam, who is a husband and a lover and uh, someone with feelings and intuition i know that that zero zero is not going to come up a sixth time jake come on what are the <laughs> odds what are the odds do you still have this bias personally i know you know the answer but like does this still trip you up a little bit yes it's the mm -hmm. yes mm -hmm. of course it just doesn't compute. I think I was trying to actually listened back to the RNG episode somewhat recently because I was trying to uh, figure out the battle dice calculations that we had talked about earlier and how we presented it. And I was listening to how I tried to explain this to you. And I, I think I did a decent enough job. But I think one thing I missed out on saying was like they are two different calculations. Like the fact that, you know, you're going to roll a zero six percent of the time as the attacker every time. And right. it's one in three million chance that you roll it five times in a row or whatever. Right. That those statistics, you say, well, they can't both be true. Well, that's right. They can't both be true at the same time because they're in different scenarios. Right. Mm. Mm. And so the, oh man, I worked so hard thinking like, this is how I would have explained it. And now that I'm <laughs> trying to explain it again, I'm not doing a very good job. It's for me, it's a holdup that uh, and I have a couple of these in the scientific world as well. I remember in physics class when the teacher was like, and maybe I said this on the RNG episode, cut it if I did. But um, when you push against a wall, it is pushing back on you with equal force. Right. Right. That's that's that actually might be Newton. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, and uh, when and I just that's not true in my brain right like but it's a fucking wall what do you mean it's, it's not, not pushing back at all it's right it's not exactly where it is right it's know? not generating the force but its presence there is resisting you in a matching way that's why it's not breaking right <laughs> i guess yeah i don't know why isn't there just like i'm pushing and it's not moving why well, isn't that acceptable science you know what i mean like i don't know i didn't push it hard enough it's a wall. Sam, how can the universe be expanding faster than the speed of light? Yet it appears to be doing just that. Like the speed of light is the fastest thing we know, yet it's expanding quicker than that, maybe. What what I don't understand. <laughs> uh you know, uh scientist Sam doesn't have all the answers, but I do have a lot of scientific props, okay? So if you need me to uh, boil some blue liquid, and uh not make... even actual scientific instruments scientific props so they're they're, they're theater <laughs> materials that look like scientific that's instruments. right that's right that's why i have it's... this oversized syringe here yeah <laughs> with just what's essentially blue kool-aid there's no actual <laughs> testable liquid in it yeah absolutely and it's delicious i wonder when the technicians at the james webb telescope are looking into deep space and they're like we've found galaxies that shouldn't be as old as they appear to be at that distance apart and that's why 
rolling a zero five times in a <laughs> row is actually statistically not as likely as you think. Yeah, I don't know. We're, we're you know, we put our resources towards weird things here. I will say that. <laughs> but Jake, rolling five times in a row, zero, zero, five times in a row is makes it less likely on the sixth time. Myth dumb. <laughs> that is correct. Okay. Oh, man, now I'm just wondering about like, you know, in in an infinite universe, there's definitely an alien version, like knockoff of Root. Mm. I would love to get that my hands on one of those. Yeah, yeah. Bring that to RootCon. I will pay a lot of money for an alien <laughs> copy of Root. A Root where a Root where all the meeples have hot dog fingers is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. And the vagabond's been replaced by Mongolio. All right. Uh, turmoiling the eerie on move is impossible. Where, where does this one come from? I've never heard this one before. Oh, I think it comes from, if you're going to turmoil them on any one of those four actions, this one is by far the least common. And this is because they tend to have the most cards in that column and therefore the most ability, like they, they've probably got at least three suits in there, so they're covered wherever they have birds. I think it's because of the rules of the game that moving, preventing moving is very difficult. Especially when, yeah, if they have multiple cards, usually at least one of them's a bird. And here's here's the big one, Jake. Yeah, it's because you can one, yeah. you can move one meeple from one clearing to another to satisfy that move. So right. if I have two rabbit moves and I have two eerie warriors in one rabbit clearing, I don't have to worry about moving them in two different rabbit clearings. I just move one and then I just move the other. Yeah. Right? Um Kyle loves to create little eerie loops with his movement where he's just got three clearings and he can always just shuffle them around so that he'll never go into turmoil on move. Yeah, and setting up backup moves and, and all that is important as well. And let's not forget that Eerie has the passive ability Lords of the Forest, which means yeah. that they rule clearings where they are tied for presence, making uh, turmoiling on move even less likely. Yeah. <laughs> so the idea is that even if you like killed the birds in the clearings where you thought they could move there's enough flexibility either with i mean a bird card in the column obviously or just right. with enough cards in there to make them puzzle it out and get to where they need to be because they can take those cards in any order so i don't know this myth sounds pretty sound so how do we bust it well it's not on us we're not carrying a bias into this right i don't want to prove or disprove i just am listening to the data in front of me okay yeah. these spreadsheets and these almanacs and these scrolls let me okay, um, let me rephrase is this myth valid i think it's it's close i mean impossible we wanted it to make it sound like it's um you know really definitive but it is the this hardest. is pretty close it's it very difficult yeah yes right. this is definitely the the toughest column to uh kind of turmoil the eerie on but I think this merits at least a few comments, one of which is that the order matters with the Eerie. So move happens after recruit and before battle. Importantly, it happens before battle. So, for example, if the Eerie are stuck in a clearing, they don't have the opportunity to battle against the forces that are keeping them there to then hopefully move out. They have to deal with it first and then move out. And secondly, I think that because this is such a an unusual column for the Eerie to turmoil on, players aren't often focused on the threats to their movement. Mm -hmm. And it actually can be sort of fascinating to 
you know, if you have the opportunity to try and set up a little trap in that kind of scenario, because the knock-on effects can often mean uh, a future turmoil for the Eerie. If you're threatening to turmoil them on move, and they have to go out of their way to do some kind of fancy movement chain just to get enough orders to keep going, then potentially they're building in a clearing that is really awkward for them or that they can't defend or they have to add a card to recruit just to get enough warriors and so they can move out uh this this could kind of force the decree to uh, go in kind of an awkward or unsustainable direction just by threatening one of the columns and kind of zooming out here from an unbiased perspective you can turn one of the area on any one of those four categories recruit move battle or build Mm -hmm. so looking at all four kind of holistically and uh you know trying to create dilemmas and threats for them is is really the way to go and so when someone says you can't turmoil them on move what i would say is move is related to the other three categories and it is a perfectly valid target uh for trying to turmoil them yeah that's interesting yeah just the act of attempting to can force them to become weaker in the other columns which as we've said is easier to turmoil it's also the easiest one to turmoil yourself by accident (laughs) (laughs) that's the case too yeah (laughs) especially when the when your column gets really heavy and the board is populated and lords of the forest doesn't do what it needs to you can just trip them up a little bit honestly yeah it's funny too because when you're playing as the ear and you're piloting this faction you often will work backwards right you'll start like okay well where am i going to build Mm-hmm. And then kind of like figure out how to set up the conditions so that you can fulfill that, right? And so often by the time you get starting backwards, get to the move step, it's like you're kind of already holding a few variations in your head. And that's just where things get so kind of gummy and crazy mm-hmm. uh, to kind of like rigorously calculate and think about. And so I, I, I think move is sort of the, the dark horse column to target if you want to really mess with the eerie. Turmoiling the eerie on move is impossible? Hell no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Next myth. You should never buy from the river folk. This one I feel like we definitely addressed in the Otter episode, or at least the versus Otter episode, which is that that's the advice that everyone gives and everyone disobeys. (laughs) (laughs) Because once you convince the other two players to do it, then you should buy. (laughs) 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 Yes, that is the game within the game for sure. (laughs) I think it's good. It's good PR to say don't buy from the Otters. Mm-hmm. But yeah. absolutely do it if you can get away with it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just a myth, you know. It's like the like don't eat thirty minutes before swimming. You know what I mean? Um, but the fact is, if other people didn't eat, then you can eat all their food while they're swimming. <laughs> did, did that hold up? Did that analogy work? Um, I think so. I think that was pretty good. <laughs> There's been a great strategy guide that I just became aware of, uh, which is Marcus the Cat's Stingy Otters Guide, which is about the otters being able to do a lot with very few warriors or very few purchases. Um, the claim here that I saw perpetuated in the Discord, and, and this is another Russian nesting doll of a myth within this myth, which is that the river folk only need two purchases to be able to win the game. Obviously, that's with a lot of things going right, not a lot of heat on the otters and all of that. Um, so, you know, these kind of two myths are working uh, in in contrast with each other. Should you never buy? 
because only two will do it? Or should we be the only people who get to buy from the river folk? This is kind of tricky to address because it really depends on the matchup in a big way. You know, if it's a board that's full of warriors that can deal with the otter ball, then buy all you want. Like, who cares? You'll just battle them away. Uh, But if it's a very kind of like insurgent heavy board, very spread out, you know, not a lot to stop them, then maybe think twice before, you know, it takes less to overfeed the otters, maybe in in that case. Uh, But I think never buying from the river folk is kind of like a moral choice almost. It's like you're sort of uh, boycotting the war profiteers. Yeah. And, you know, that's great. I applaud that. Yeah. I want to play with two players that feel that very strongly <laughs> you should obey you should obey this myth if you are the woodland alliance as well i think we've also oh, yeah. that in yeah. a lot of places yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 if you're the woodland alliance or even crows i think it's pretty dangerous badgers it's kind of dangerous wouldn't crows want it for like the boats or the cards a little bit i mean i guess if it's expensive no I mean, if it's two warriors, I mean, you only have 15, and right. crows tend to use all their yes, warriors they if their them. game's going good. Yeah. So, I mean, if I was the river folk, I'd be like, oh, you're a low warrior count thing? Like, oh, these warriors might matter to you? Well, then I will keep them. You mm-hmm. know? Okay. Yeah. I, I think this is this is a pretty kind of surface level myth. Like, never buy from the river folk? Meh, I don't know. The deeper one to think about maybe is that buying river folk services at two is the same as protectionism. Ooh, yeah. We just dipped a toe in here, but I think that this myth is actually really interesting. Yeah. I was going to say, to be clear, uh, protectionism is the first step in Birdsong, which is if the payment box is empty, they place two warriors inside. Mm-hmm. Two of their own. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the river folk will kind of add two of their own warriors into their economy if no one has purchased during the kind of full round in between their turns. So that's called protectionism, and the river folk will just kind of automatically get to otter funds every turn if you do nothing. Um, so then if they have their prices set at two, and you're a faction that's not the otters, let's say, you know, you might be thinking, hey, why not? I'm just going to spend two funds, because two funds is two funds no matter what. So the warriors are a different color, but they have the same function, so it doesn't really matter. That's the argument. That's the myth. Mm-hmm. Sam, how, how should we bust it? Well, it does matter because really what we're looking at here, the only real thing that matters if they're otter warriors or other factions warriors is when they're putting down trade posts. When they put down a trade post, they spend two of a clearing's warriors to put a trade post and a garrison in that clearing. So if they're spending two cat warriors, then they put that in a clearing that the cats rule. And that matches the trade post that they're putting down. So it does matter because if they want to make a trade post with otter warriors, then they have to rule that clearing. And as we all know, the otters love to be in a big old ball. They're going to have to commit one fund in order to move that otter ball to a clearing and then use their own warriors to place a trade post. So, yeah, it is slightly more expensive for them to use their own warriors. It definitely is. And uh, if, you know, after the first few trade posts, uh, it it may force them to leave the river. Yeah. Which could lead to danger for the otters if they get trapped away from the river, if they get bogged down in fighting, um, you know, if they get into a boondoggle away from the river, this could be uh, 
really tough for them to get out of. And at the end of a game, they want to drop a bunch of trade posts really fast and just score a bunch of points really quickly. And if they can do that for, you know, lots and lots of clearings all over the map that are far away, that's just much easier for them to do and they can more reliably score those points. So it's very much not the same. There is also another kind of component to this too, which we briefly mentioned, which is the otters can keep your two warriors out of circulation by kind of keeping them in their economy. So you don't have those two warriors to recruit, for example. If you're the Eerie Dynasties, that might be a really big deal. Right. Yeah, and just them having the flexibility of that. Like, there can be where the Otter Ball isn't even one move away from a clearing that they want to put a trade post in. Or maybe the only one they can, they also have lizard funds. The lizards rule that clearing, so they're not going to spend the cat ones on a rabbit clearing. Like, they have their own puzzle to work out. And when you give them your warriors, you're giving them more options to solve their puzzle. Yeah, very much. One last otter one I want to throw in here, and that is that destroying trade posts hurts the otters, right? We're removing their cardboard from the board, right? Yeah, this one is interesting. And I think that some sensitivity is required in terms of the location of those trade posts. Mm -hmm. Specifically, if those trade posts are on the river you might want to consider leaving them alone. Here's the deal. The otters don't need trade posts on the map in order to craft. Right. They just need to have placed them. And then those slots are now available for them to use for crafting. So the, the main reason to keep the trade posts on the map is because they can't place a second one in the same clearing. So if you leave all the trade posts in the river clearings, the otters are forced to go far afield to drop other trade posts which strategically for them is more expensive in the end game and could buy the the table an extra turn, uh, which obviously, you know, one cardboard point is for sure worth trading for a full extra round uh, um, in the end game. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I was wondering, though, like, what's the danger of leaving cardboard out there for someone else to go snipe and just be like, well, I don't care about the otters. <laughs> It's the same dilemma as buying from the otters, where it's like, (laughs) if we all don't do it, then we can get one up on them. However, if you're the only person, you're like, "Eh." if if you honestly think that the otters aren't going to benefit too much from it, it's a point. Well, you can see what they can craft. True. True. Yeah, but you can't destroying a trade post doesn't do anything about crafting. No, I know. I'm just saying, like you, you, you know what's possible and what they want to where the, mm. if they want yeah. to build more trade posts to craft. Right, right, yeah. So definitely. let's say, for example, that they have a trade post in a rabbit clearing on the river, and mm-hmm. they have a bake sale in hand. If you destroy that rabbit trade post, then on their turn they can just drop another one and immediately craft that that bake yeah. sale. So I think like. Yeah, keeping an eye on what they can craft, what slots they have available, and forcing them to take the more expensive option by traveling around and, and dropping trade posts. Don't make it easy. To me, that's super worth it. Yeah, so um, destroying trade posts, countervailing this myth, it does not hurt the otters. In fact, it might actually really help them. Yeah. All right, so never buying from the river folk. Myth sunk. <laughs> buying <laughs> river folk services at two is the same as protectionism. Myth uh, scuttled <laughs> and destroying <laughs> trade posts hurts the otters a myth uh, f- floated a little bit and then kind of went under the water <laughs> gross alright <laughs> next myth is dominance is impossible 
This is a weird one. We've experienced in the tournament already the insane situation we, that allowed it to happen. Did we experience it? I mean, I watched. <laughs> Jet and I were sitting there just mouth agape as it happened in our living room at 7 a.m. or whatever that was. Um, yeah, like, I think we can actually maybe clarify the wording on this a little bit. It's like, you had you actually mentioned it. Is, is dominance viable? Which, yeah. Like the word viable meaning possible and the answer is still yes. But like is like is it a, a viable strategy to kind of have as a strategy as opposed yeah. to a, an escape hatch from a bad situation? Should you waste and I'm going to say waste. Should you waste <laughs> your brain power on dominance? Yeah. Is it worth thinking about? I think it's worth considering in circumstances. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially in some of the situations that we've started to see with aggressive policing. I think we we talked about this a few episodes ago where policing has become a little bit cooler. <laughs> it used to be everybody thought it was such a, a chore. And now people are just kind of okay with it when they're the red faction. They're like, it's part of the job. And mm-hmm. so if the board gets a little sparse and people can't handle things, there are opportunities. I've seen a few situations. It hasn't actually happened. But I've seen a few situations where bird dominance was shockingly possible for some factions in in the winter tournament they didn't do it but like the, the circumstances were there and as long as you're considering it and you're and if you're not going to win anyway i don't know well if you're not going to win anyway then just have fun you know do whatever you want to yeah, or can make whoever was nicest to you in the <laughs> yeah exactly who cares who cares um but yeah I, I did get an update from McWarmaker here, obviously the player that uh, is the only one who has won with dominance in a tournament. And McWarmaker assured me that they saw this thing from the draft from the get-go with with the Vagabonds and stuff. And I, I gave, gave them all the props for that. Um, that situation but, being a three-player game with the cats in the draft and two Vagabonds in the draft as well. Mm-hmm, yeah. With otters locked. <laughs> yeah. That's so, so crazy. This is why I think... It's it's more helpful as as a scientist to say that this is not a viable strategy because the only time it's worked in a competitive environment was under very specific circumstances. It's like if you had if you made like a a, a perpetual motion machi- machine, you know, but it only worked one time in a dark room uh, and only a few people laid witness to it. It's like, well, that maybe it happened, but can we even build on that? You know, two things have occurred since we first talked the world about dominance was changed. on world on Woodland War Machine, which was that the Marauder expansion brought in the Lost City, which makes mm-hmm. it a little yep. more doable. The hirelings, if they're in the game, also mm-hmm. make it more doable because they contribute to rule. And the other thing is, like during the winter tournament, we did see a few people go for it last year, and yeah. It didn't happen, but some of them were really close. There were very, very close. close. Yeah, and yeah. so right on the brink. I, I don't know. Like if I'd say really close is good enough for the sake of this conversation of like <laughs> in the competitive environment, they got that close. And like because it's so rare, we 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 just don't have the sheer numbers to like put the data in there yet. But as of right now, everything you're saying is technically true, Sam. It, it's only really happened once in a competitive environment. But maybe August 19th or 20th in Portland, Oregon, someone's going to make me the happiest rabbit alive. <laughs> if I can see it in person. 
That's great. Oh, that is a that is definitely a raffle achievement, right? Is win a yeah, dominance yeah, victory? I, yeah, yeah. Definitely, we're gonna have a sheet of achievements that you can do, and based on how difficult the achievements are, you will get multiple entries into the raffle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can imagine that dominance one being a a pretty juicy. Yeah, one. like there's probably like two or three tickets in it for you if you do dominance, but only like one if you do rabbit dominance, since that's easier. Yeah, yeah right. it's the best mm-hmm. card in the game. Mm-hmm. All right, Jake, dominance is impossible. Not dominant at all as an idea <laughs> in the zeitgeist. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Reminds me of that old Mythbusters show. Okay. Um, here we go. Next myth. The crows are completely stoppable. They are not a threat. Oh, that's two statements. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what this... Uh, they... Kyle, did you add in not a threat? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so, probably. Sorry. <laughs> okay, they're a threat. They're a threat. They have bombs. They're the only <laughs> faction with bombs besides the Woodland Alliance. Well, I guess the scoundrel. Uh, <laughs> they're a threat, but they are stoppable. We've talked about the counting mechanism. I was telling the guys... <laughs> the before, mechanism of counting. The mechanism of <laughs> numerical order. Uh... <laughs> I was talking before we recorded the episode. The thing is, is like for such a a faction with secrets and deception, the way to stop them is very public information. (laughs) It's at the top of their board. Yeah, they have they have a plot out and a crow next to it. You need to stop that. (laughs) Like that's how they gain their big points. So I think I think this myth kind of holds up a little bit. If you are aware of the crows and by aware, I mean your eyes are on the board. And you're communicating with the other players at the table. They're very stoppable. I want to submit a piece of evidence uh, to the court. Okay. We've changed. We're <laughs> we're now in science court. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that is that I've seen walrus law play the crows where, and I think Nev's done this too, where they only get like, I think it was like three to five points from flipping and they won the game or got to like 20. Well, where did those points come from? crafting and battling and being scrappy as hell yeah those are things that are stoppable sure but it's not the same where you're it it, it would cost you actions you're moving around and honestly they don't seem like the threat obviously other things happened in that game where our attention was turned on each other right that's exactly it uh i don't think that like i i think we're all thinking of exposure is really the way to stop the crows because it costs you almost nothing and you can get a point out of it and you can stop them dead in their tracks of getting their big points. It does cost you nothing if you guess correctly, right? Right. It's no action and you get the card back. <laughs> and a point. That's yeah. insane, yeah. actually. Yeah. That's the, one yeah. of the most stoppable things about them. I, the, we don't see yeah. exposure a, a lot. People tend to just battle it away, I, at least in my experience, anecdotally. Mm-hmm. But like... The fact that it is a zero cost thing when you get it right is kind of bonkers. You can do it basically any time on your turn. It, yeah, I think I think your scrappy example is really good, Sam. But I think it's so situational upon like w- what was happening on the board elsewhere. Maybe maybe Kyle's statement about them not being a threat is somewhat true. Of like they're not the threat, mm-hmm. but what they are is a threat that you will forget about if you let yeah. them. If you let them. And yeah, I just think like there are people that have figured out how to play the crows knowing that people think they're stoppable. I think they're living in that meta. I think yeah. that's, that's actually yes. this myth is helping their meta. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's definitely the case that the headline about this faction is not always the reality on the ground. Mm-hmm. And that definitely these mechanisms ex- exist to stop the, the crows, 
But A, everyone has to be on board and very aware of the specific threats that they pose in order to stop them. And B, they might take a different avenue, a different approach to the game, kind of playing on this meta that leads them into a spot where they can win the game. They can win the whole thing. We've seen it happen. So when we say crows are completely stoppable, you got to be aware that this is just a propaganda battle. <laughs> well, yeah. Go ahead, ask me, Sam. Are crows completely stoppable? Myth largely true if you remember it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was what happened with you in your game with against Walrus Law. It was like you kind well, of assumed it. that was a big flip, it. though. I, yeah, yeah. yeah, but it was a big flip because he got to, to do it. Like you, <laughs> you didn't stop him from getting the flip because you were under this whole we will stop him eventually or like he is not a threat. Well, I was worried about the moles. Yeah, yeah. you were. You were rightly worried about the moles, but not Hate rightly enough. Yeah. <laughs> okay here's here's the myth the myth we're closing out today's episode on and that is that the cats or the marquise de cat is the easiest faction for a beginner oh <laughs> hmm? uh, where to start i think that this is presented in the base game of root as like the the faction everyone starts with right the starting yes. kind of like a one uh, faction. This is like, you know, uh, I feel like it's on the box. It's like this is Mario in Mario Kart. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> Mongolia. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah, there you go. Um, and uh, I think Garrick said it best that the cats have a really approachable rule set for how to learn the faction, but they have an incredibly high skill ceiling and it is just mind-blowing to me that this that both of those things are true about this faction mm-hmm. and so when i i think the the specific thing i take umbrage with is that the cats are easy i would say that they are the mechanics are straightforward but playing them well is insanely difficult I'm, I don't even want to talk about like even like being good or like winning as the cats is the hard part. I do think that playing them is difficult. Yes, their mechanics, like you said, Kyle, are straightforward, but like ruling connected clearings in order to build wood and like having to care about building slots, which one of the three building tracks am I going down? All of these kind of choices are a little tough for beginners on top of the fact that they start with pieces everywhere and if this is a new game people are like oh my goodness we have to take care of these cats Mm -hmm. so now you've got people being aggressive towards you and an experienced player knows like whoa whoa whoa, pump the brakes on the cats right now like you need them to be a force in the woodland but from a new player's perspective it doesn't seem that way i don't know i think that the cats mechanics actually kind of are the easiest um i I know kyle said that and i i almost wonder if they are the easiest to play but not the easiest to win with because any faction when you first play it i think for all of them is very difficult to get a handle on in a competitive way like what faction is you oh you got it figured out the first time none of them but of but of all of them the cats have the most uh, similarities to other games of, you know, units on the board, use resources to build buildings, and then you follow all the basic rules of Root 
beyond that, including moving, uh, ruling for movement, ruling for sawmills, etc., and connecting that. So I think those mechanics are more intuitive than, say, the other example that people give as their first player uh, option is like the Vagabond, who has an ungodly amount of rules, many of which aren't even on the Vagabond's board. Like, the cat's information is right there and straightforward. Now, I do concede the point that, like, the way the cats interact with the other factions uh, in the woodland is bonkers confusing and really counterintuitive in that you seem like you're the police, but we know you don't want to be because you have warriors everywhere. So you could theoretically deal with everything, but it's not efficient if you want to win the game. So from a teaching perspective, instead of giving the cats to uh, your most like reluctant or like nervous board game buddy, what, what who should play the cats in that teaching game? You. Yeah, generally you. Generally think, the teacher. I think because you can handle the heat if it comes, you know, and you can, if if you're being a really good teacher and not, like, putting your pedal to the metal on, like, trying to win the game, like, you can just build in areas that allow other players to kind of find their footing in the game, too. Like, you control a lot of the kind of spatial awareness that's going to be happening. Obviously, probably somebody's going to be birds in in a learning game. Um either that or Lord of the Hundreds or the Duchy, but like we're probably going to have another high reach faction there. So uh anything you can do to help the birds player figure out what they're going to do is going to be helpful. But I I think that the vagabond is the choice to give really? to the reluctant player. Ugh. Because yes, Jake, because the vagabond stuff is very straightforward until it becomes all the edge case crap right but that is edge case stuff i find damaging repairing and exhausting to be a non-intuitive thing for folks whereas like spend wood build building get point under building is uh those are a set of sentences i didn't have to use articles for so like right. you, you understood what was happening. <laughs> well i i feel the same way about the vagabond though flip sword do battle right flip boot yeah, Make flip moves. sword do battle. Uh, how many hits can I do in battle? How many swords do you have? I don't know. Like, is that does that is that stated in there too? On the board? Uh, yeah. I don't know. Let's look. I don't look at the boards. I know how to play this game. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> also, I think a thing that we'll talk about when we we're gonna do more root myths because we have way more than we're gonna get to in this episode today. But I think one that we'll we'll explore more is that the first game of root happens to you. We kind of talked about that. Yes, we're gonna yeah, talk yeah. more about that. But like that's true for this circumstance too. So if someone if you give someone the Woodland Alliance, you know, I think the Woodland Alliance are kind of easy in your first game because you can't do much in the beginning. You kind of watch a little bit and you learn through sympathy and an outrage uh how to start generating your engine a little bit and you learn through that process whereas cats are like i have to make all the plays now um i think at least with the cats it's it's all laid out there for you whereas with the birds and the vagabond it it's much easier to trip up your situation the birds obviously because you'll self-turmoil uh the vagabond because you just might not be in the in the space you need to do the things or you go to a ruin and then you're like, Oh, I found a torch. What do I do with the torch? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, there's no that torches in the room. Okay, so, yeah, say I, that. I knew as soon as I said torch, <laughs> it's going to counter me with no, the that, a torch. But. That, that all makes sense to me. I will say though, for the like 
kind of nervous first time player style of the vagabonds interactivity yes is very manageable right you're not trying to deal with ruling clearings mm-hmm. you're not trying to deal with um you know having your engine like stopped by somebody being somewhere it's all very very like one to one you have one dude who's in one place and then if you get attacked then like that happens all in like one kind of controlled area you don't have to have big like visualization of all your forces out on the board trying to figure out where to put your pieces and stuff you just go from spot to spot and you know you've got quests out there that you can choose to do if you want like there's stuff laid out if you're aiding your social relationship changes and then if you fight their warrior and take a warrior out of battle your relationship changes and then if you remove your score token from the board and uh co- like have a coalition with them your relationship changes i think like in a va- at a basic level i suppose your relationship with other players is simple but mm-hmm. it's the, by far the most complex of all the factions as well yes yeah it builds when up you, quickly that's when true. you get into the back end of the vagabond it it, it asks more questions than it answers. I hear you. But I think that for a new player, I think Kyle hit it on the head here. The style of the Vagabond is very what they want. They want to go around to clearings like, hey, I'm just trying to help everybody because I aid you and yeah. I get points, you know? Yeah. So they're giving things. It's a very like reciprocal thing. They're like worried about this war game and they just get to be a little adventurer, collecting items, helping other factions until yeah. they're like, and how do I battle? And you tell them, and then they are, and they get to experience a game where they're very competitive in their first game. They are. That's true. That is the benefit is that they're so damn good, and yeah. infamy will get them what they need on the points if they if it doesn't happen from questing. Yeah, yeah. I, they were the original war profiteers before the otters were in the game, which mm-hmm. I guess the otters were technically at launch, whatever. But you get my point of like, yeah, they were the ones who were uh, taking advantage of all the fighting that was happening everywhere else. Yeah, so that makes sense. I guess you can ask me, but I'm not sure what I'm going to say. Oh, okay. Let's let's do it. Final verdict here, Jake. Uh, cats are the easiest for the beginners. Myth true based on who the beginner is. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, that's all we have to do. We're definitely going to do another Myths episode at some point. We got a bunch of great feedback, and I want to give a big shout out. To the Annoying Alchemist, Marcus the Cat, Captain Freeze, SCPT Matt, A.A. Ron, Harriet, Matt P., Nevakineza, Monte Cristo, Squidmark, Bonsai, Nikal, and Endgamer1331, Greg G., Linen Master, and Trallid. Yeah, if you submitted a myth or haven't submitted one yet, we're going to do one of these again in the future because we want to cover even more of these. But there's just so much to talk about <laughs> in an evidence-free uh, vacuum. <laughs> okay, I did just read a comment from Nebuchadnezzar that came out while we were recording here. He said, Murder She Root and his quaint emoji reactions can bite my ass. Crows are objectively stoppable, and if the podcast claims otherwise, I will be appearing in person to express my displeasure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we know they're objectively stoppable. It's like when you forget the objective. <laughs> That's a good way to As phrase scientists, it. we never forget to be objective. <laughs> no. A scientist arrives precisely when he means to. <laughs> I, I just love the idea that, like, Nev is our peer review. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> Well, I'll uh, tell you what, Nev, if you want to appear in person, the time to do that is August 19th and 20th at RootCon 2023. Tickets probably not available. 
<laughs> it's going to be sold out. It's going to be wild. Uh, get your tickets if you can. Follow the links. Join the Good Time Society Discord, the Woodland War Machine channel, all that good stuff. Oh, baby. Just gearing up for a big old weekend of root in many months. If you are in the need of Nev to peer review anything for you, all you have to do is look in the mirror and say the following phrase three times. All right, and the, this week's challenge, this happens after the credits here. This week's challenge. We have credits? Oh, right. We I don't should, have I should make music. credits. Yeah, yeah. All right, so after the credits, uh, the challenge for this week is to be the first person to change their... <laughs> no, no. I'm trying to do something that Bonsai can't win. I don't know if there's a challenge we can do where Bonsai <laughs> just can't win. Uh, it has to involve bonsai. As, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the first person to... Um... Ban bonsai from the Discord. No, no, oh, no. Uh, okay. uh... <laughs> um, how, how do we do this? Or a bonsai specific one. The first person to tell me how many stars bonsai currently has in their Discord name gets a star themselves. But bonsai can't do it. I don't know. Maybe Bonsai will be first, you know? <laughs> they tend to be. <laughs> the first person to beat Bonsai in a game of Root. Ooh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Now Bonsai plays four-handed Root and beats himself. <laughs> yeah, that's not a bad idea. All right, that's all I got. I know he's pretty floored. Also, he made a bet with me early on. He goes, you think you can get 60 people here? <laughs> How about this? Whoever, if you get 60 people here, I'll buy you a fancy dinner or something like that. And I'm going to be like, do I get two? Do I get two fancy dinners? <laughs> Bitch, you're taking me to the opera. <laughs>